0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior, Tiger Gao. Today, we uh, have another amazing economist joining us to give another quick overview uh, of what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially from a small business perspective, using big data uh, and private sector insights to, to, to arrive uh, at results on, on what happened on the onset and during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, his name is Chris Wheat. He is the co-president of the JP Morgan Chase Institute. Uh, prior to joining JP Morgan Chase Institute, he served as a director of analytics at a financial technology startup where he led the development of advanced analytics algorithms. Uh, he was previously an assistant professor at MIT Sloan School of Management and at the center. For urban entrepreneurship and economic development at Rutgers Business School. Uh, Chris uh, was a Princeton alum. He earned a, a, a undergrad degree in mechanical aerospace engineering uh, before uh, pursuing uh, various other degrees, an MS in, in computer science from Stanford, and then an MA in sociology from Harvard, and then a PhD uh, in organizational behavior from, from Harvard. So a very well-rounded scholar. And now he is at JP Morgan Chase Institute. We're uh, very excited to have you join us today, Chris. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, and I, I apologize for making you go through
0: that winky. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the more formal, the, the better. Uh, and and uh, co-hosting this interview with me is Brian Wang. He is uh, a freshman on our team and uh, has been leading uh, a lot of the research and question writing questions for, for this interview. Brian, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, of course. Chris, maybe we'll we'll just uh, jump right in because you are one of the two co-presidents at J.P. Morgan Chase Institute. You lead research on small businesses, local economic development, among many other topics. So so perhaps the the very big picture question is: uh, What is the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute, uh, and what do you do?
1: Great. Um, So J.P. Morgan Chase Institute, um, we are coming up on uh, six years. Um, So we've been around for. Like now I guess I can say a little while um, and from the beginning our our mandate has been to try to help people in uh, decision makers many in the public sector but some in the private sector as well to make policy decisions um, that you know are, are, are sustaining the the economy pushing toward um, you know equitable growth and um, sort of the diverse ways that the that the mostly U.S. economy wouldn't to the extent that we can comment on sort of the global economy as well. Um, and we do that by using uh, de-identified data from our customers and clients. Um, and so uh, that's like a tremendous opportunity, I think, um, certainly prior to my getting here, uh, that the leadership of the bank had this perspective, which is, look, there's decisions that get made all the time in the absence of data, and a lot of data is otherwise locked up in, you know, the the day-to-day processing uh, that happens in the private sector. And it, it, it felt like not in the national interest, quite frankly, to to have decisions made and to sort of have a less understandable, you know, policy environment, um, when it could have been better, to, more predictable decision-making happening, you know, based on, on the kind of data that we have access to. And so like, that's a tremendous opportunity that I stumbled into. Um, I, I joined, uh, not long after the, the institute went public. So I guess I'm coming up on 60 at some point uh, soon as well. Uh, I, I joined as a research director um, leading our small business and uh, what we would call local commerce work. Um, and then since uh, right around the, the end of the year, I've, I've um, been acting as the co-president. And so um, I mostly have been um, sort of engaged in the kind of research that is more about things that are of interest to local policymakers, although there's a huge, I mean, especially uh, in the last year, federal uh, conversation around um, sort of small business policy, and there, there always has been one. Um, but that's, that's mostly what I've been up to is kind of building a team, um, helping guide their sort of uh, use of the technology to, to produce the analytics and, and crafting them the policy insights.
2: So as a quick follow up to that, um, so one of the main themes, uh, research themes at the JP Morgan Chase Institute is in business research. And I think for some of our listeners, um, a lot of college students, research, the idea of research is associated with like academia, right? Designing and investigating uh, these theoretically focused questions that largely exist in an academic sphere. So can you describe how like, these two um, like, themes, business and research, function together? Is business research something that aligns more closely with like, industry or academia, or is it something that's like separate from uh, that binary?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So for me, uh, let me try to answer all the versions of that question uh, that that maybe you were getting it. So narrowly, for um, when I was a director of business research, uh, unpacking that into a longer title would have been director of research on businesses uh, at some point, perhaps small and large. um, You know, we have a lot more customers that are are, are small businesses, so it's like much more of a big data exercise, um, sort of still trying to think through how we might work through the middle market and larger businesses, but it's all part of the business sector. And so like roughly that was my coverage area. So we were doing policy research as it pertained to the business sector, if you want to think about it that way. But it was still, you know, 50,000 feet looked more like kind of academic style research anyway, where we have that. a policy, a question that you could test, a hypothesis, perhaps even <laughs> um, that you might formally test, and you're trying to sort of come up with an answer. I mean, we we do sit more in the applied end of the spectrum to the extent that, um, relative to my prior history as, as, a, as an academic, I think we are more policy facing, like like uh, are are more in the business of trying to generate real time insights that are actionable for policymakers. And I would say other researchers are who, who are more upstream in that, in that uh, supply chain. More generally to your question, yes, there are a lot of people in in the private sector who do research as well. Um, perhaps generally speaking, even more so kind of, I'm doing product research or I'm doing you know market research. Like there's, there's all kinds of ways uh, that people take the tools of research um, as they exist in sort of an academic setting and then apply them to Rural problems, often they have to turn those answers more quickly <laughs> It's part of the part of the deal. Um, but it is also kind of interesting because in the same way, it's a lot closer to seeing the impact of that research um, in a shorter amount of time, so it's kind of an itching trade-off there.
0: So Chris, you're probably in the sweet spot between uh, the, the academics who uh, have to publish papers in econ journals, but also not like the JP Morgan securities people who, who write about day-to-day market. <laughs>
1: I wouldn't say, I mean, it's, it's a choice, right, like uh, um, there's something really, you know, um, I've heard both um, directional pushes from both sets of people, right, like uh, my friends who are in academia, sometimes are like, man, I really wish like, I could sort of see what happens with this, or I could sort of turn this more quickly, and then my friends who do sort of um, like research that's right up against the product line are like, I would love to have as much time as you you have to, to sort of like actually answer this question, but we got to get this turn and move on to the next thing. So I think, you know, it, it's trade offs So I don't know that like they, all this is on the special market.
0: <laughs> so so Chris, I guess just to quickly j- jump back into the the COVID related research, because you guys actually published many reports. One, one is titled Small Business Financial Outcomes during the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic, and also small business owners race, liquidity and survival, uh, and also the financial outcomes during, the onset of COVID-19, so so multiple reports on, on COVID-19, and you came to Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance uh, a couple months ago in November, basically presenting a lot of those big data insights on the COVID-19 economy, and, and it's the reason why we got connected. So perhaps the, a, another generic question to start this is, uh, would you mind telling some of your main research findings? Maybe we can start with one of the, w- one of the reports that uh, you like the most, so.
1: Yeah, okay, so It's a little easier for me to think about it as a set of research. And so I'll just try to kind of touch on the things that I think were most interesting. Um, And as a piece of context, when when we were doing this research, we were really just trying to be as responsive as we could, speaking a little bit to to the prior point. Like we wanted, there were people who were trying to make policy decisions, you know, more or less real time as quickly as they could. And so we wanted to try to really do a a piece of descriptive work to help people understand um, what was happening with the small business sector we hadn't seen, we had seen in prior research what happens when there's a shorter term disruption. So we had specifically focused on some hurricane uh, research around small business and household financial outcomes um, when Harvey and Irma came through a few years ago. Oh, we really didn't know what was gonna happen with COVID. And so a lot of what was important in that research where I think we were able to help people understand things was just high level, um, how much revenue are small businesses losing? How permanent is that? How long is this going on for? And in particular, what does it mean in terms of the cash balances that they're holding? Um, because we had done all this research uh, showing the the relationship between revenue, cash liquidity, and survival for small businesses. And so um, in some sense, just, just the quantitative information about you know how much was it down in April when did it start to come back I, I think was uh in a very descriptive way what was probably most important to get out as quickly as we could again turning as fast as we could on the data that we had um to, to help people understand that I also think that the the, the breakouts by industry by owner race uh, to the extent that we were able to do that um, were helpful because I think there was a sense I think appropriate and you can see it um, particularly even in you know sort of last week I think in terms of the policy direction that we should act quickly and we should be thoughtful about targeting and like that's a real tension <laughs> um, but what we were trying to do was was help at least give a shape of the answer uh, kind of level to but but if you, could target in some subsequent round, like how might you think about that? Like, where where are we seeing sort of more pronounced um, impacts, uh, you know, be it by industry? Um, we, we, we didn't see a whole lot regionally, although we did look a little bit at that um, by owner race and things like
0: that.
2: Yeah, so in one of your reports um, titled Small Business Financial Outcomes During the Onset of COVID 19, uh, you highlight how businesses um as you're speaking, needs to maintain robust cash balances to weather these financial hardships. Um, so you also point out that cutting expenses or the idea of businesses like pulling themselves up from the bootstraps leads to perhaps deficiencies in the supply chain. Um, it's not really like a sustainable um, economic solution in the long term. So for the policymaker, then like what balance sheet metrics should be prioritized. Um, in fiscal stimulus like should it be cash balances and cash revenues um, and like what is what is the current scene on that.
1: No, that's a really good question and it's. Um... Well, let me tell you how I think about it since I'm not going to be able to precisely answer your question. Um, I think. The first thing that I tend to look at and I think that our teams tend to look at um, is liquidity because in some sense it's like, it is it is a reasonable summary of a lot of things, right? Like if you are, um, if you have a, a fixed expense level then sort of seeing a, a real big hit to revenue which is broadly what we're, we're seeing here, right? Like people aren't buying things um, because, uh, for a variety of reasons, but some because they're home, some because they, have different patterns of doing things, right? There's a lot of reasons there's demand drops. Um, like, To the extent that you can't cut your expenses back, well then like that that tells you uh, something about the harm. But one of the distinctive things that we can see as the bank, as opposed to other sources of data, is like, okay, but like, but what did that actually mean? Like, how did you respond to that? And balances give you a sense of kind of the net impact of, well, demand drop, but maybe like my my position in servicing the demand responded to that too, right Like if I was a restaurant, I didn't have to spend as much on on inputs um, and, and maybe I cut back on labor too. So from the point of view of the health of the business, it might be the case particularly for the short run that it, that, it, that a cash position um, is a is a reasonable kind of high frequency measure, right like if my, my, my revenue dropped by half, but my expenses also dropped by a half. And, and this is the kind of pattern that we had seen in prior research. It's like the impact might not be as stark as you thought it was. So that's why I think we have, we've drawn a lot of attention to cash balances because it's um, it gives you a little bit of perspective that um, is new. I mean, not so much that it's new in the world, but it, it hasn't been easy from particularly public sector data sources to get a lens on that. Now, that being said, for a longer-term disruption, you also might worry about um, expenses because I think they start to give you a picture for a couple reasons. One, um, uh, because your expenses are somebody else's revenue, right? So you're just trying to get a sense of like, well, what's happening in, in the whole um, economy, um, be it firms or not. Like one of your expenses might be payroll. Um, so you know, if you're in the labor market, of course, you care about um, wide, wide and dispersed. Drops in, in payroll expenses. You maybe care about why didn't the Spurs drops in in um, in rental payments or in you know sort of real estate flavored payments um, because of like those upstream. This is this is a little bit where I was getting um, on that point. But you also might worry about um, deterioration of assets as a as a class because the, you know the upkeep isn't happening, and so like the, the less easy to see. Uh, the, the picture in my mind is sort of hollowing out, right? Um, of, of the businesses and of the, 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 the context in which they're operating um, is a kind of thing. When it's not a week that happens, or you know, maybe even several weeks with like a natural disaster, but it's like, I don't know how, how long you guys have been in the same room, uh, <laughs> but I've been in a while, right? And it's so yeah. like that's kind of why we want to draw attention to that. Uh,
0: so I guess just to quickly take a step back, Chris, because this idea of cash balances it's something that has uh, been used as a metric, uh, again, again, in many of your reports. And I think that's probably something particularly suitable for JP Morgan Chase to have data on because you guys handle credit card transactions and so on. So I, I guess taking a st- 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 step back, uh, what are some of the metrics that you guys use or, or look at what data sources that you particularly care about when kind of looking at financial house? Because usually we hear about how Unemployment in the economy as sort of the main metric, or GDP growth, right? but but these are first of all not high-frequency data a lot of times, and second of all, uh, you you would need uh, unemployment data or or, or uh, especially GDP data to come in many months or quarters behind. So th- there's that kind of lagging effect. There's not that kind of real-time big data insights. So I, I guess just to just to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on uh, what metrics, what what data you care about.
1: I should have said I should have explained this before. I mean, and it's a good point. Um, so across, certainly for the small business research, um, also for most of our household finance research, the the data that is at the core, like we often have additional things. We might have credit bureau daily, but there's lots of other things we might append to it, but like the core data that we're looking at is checking account data. And so it's transactions uh, and balances essentially, uh, I shouldn't say checking, deposit accounts. So checking and saving accounts, other things that look like that. Um, and like that's a little bit uh, unique in that it does give you a, a more rounded picture than just, for instance, credit card data, which we also do things with, um, right? But like, or card data, it's a debit card data we have as well, um, which gives you a really interesting sort of spin view. And yes, you can, particularly when you have the universe, you can take those kinds of things and and convert them. I mean, we don't have the universe, but like, if you You could use data that looked like that to get to a view of something that looks sort of GDP-like, right? Um, It turns out that um, with those kind of data, even de-identified, you might be able to identify um, people who are getting unemployment and how much unemployment they're getting, because like you see, if you get it as direct deposit and not everybody does, but you'll see that. So there's there's lots of ways we can connect those data to uh, economic constructs that show up across. uh, household and small business finance literature. Um, but for us, I think what's distinctive is the fact that um, we can see the cash flows in a, in, a, in a super high frequency way. We know something about what kinds of flows those are. Um, and we can see the cash positions um, because I, I think you know it, it is a more imaginary research. Um, there appears to be relationships between particularly at a micro level, right? Um, the well-being of a small business, um, the volatility of its cash flows, let's say, and 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 the um the liquidity that it holds to manage whatever uncertainty might see in its cash flows. And so in some sense, we're kind of looking at a new set of constructs that that qualitatively map to that universe, but like particularly in the small business sector, it's not totally clear how like what the comparable data are. And like that's what I think makes them so interesting and exciting. It's like people will say things like, you should manage your cash flows better. I'm like, well, how would you ever measure that? And it's like, what what would that mean? Or like this policy is intended to sort of like increase liquidity so that people can survive shocks better. It's like, yes, but like, how would you otherwise observe the shock and understand particularly the short run dynamics that are sort of producing the macro outcome? So so, so it is a super different kind of data than sort of data that I had sort of had access to um, in the past, Um, but it is really interesting in, in its ability to shine light or a slightly different light, at least on 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 similar questions.
2: Yeah. So, kind of jumping off of that um, talk about how uh, like these different metrics are used, but in terms uh, like from the other side, um, basically like how uh, like how is this information really interpreted by the public? So we usually um, hear about uh, like unemployment in the economy as the main metric because. Um, that's more readily available to policymakers and the public. But how do you think um, that the availability bias of information regarding small businesses um, affects like government policy? Um, and like, is there like an asymmetry of information going on here between like policymakers and their constituents?
1: I mean, I, I don't know if if the following or that's a great question, and it's something that I think about <laughs> just sort of like level set there. Um, and just to give you a, an example. um, one of the things that you can collect from um, um, public sector administrative data, as it were, um, that's relevant in the small business universe, anyway, is employment data. Um, so not just sort of unemployment data, right? But like, like how many, how many people, how many jobs, right, go with small businesses? So off, there's a very robust conversation around sort of small businesses and jobs. And there's data on small businesses and jobs because like as an employer, you have to file paperwork. And so it's very observable to the, to many entities in the government, sort of like what the the intersection is of the small business sector and employment. Um, And there's a a robust policy conversation around it. There is less attention on things where there isn't as much data. Um, There is less attention on or uh, a less robust conversation, anyway, about the. Oh, okay, I haven't looked these numbers up recently, but so 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 bear with me. But if there are about thirty million small businesses in the U.S., like if you kind of go to SBA to F, um, about twenty-three million of them don't have any employees, right? So there's lots of households whose um, well-being is entailed in the small business sector, um, and we have some data on non businesses, but we don't we don't have a way of talking about are they creating jobs or not, and if that's the only thing that people are used to looking at data on, it might be the only thing that they're sort of building policy around, but there's all kinds of things you might ask um, if you had different, are they growing? Are they growing in a way that's not about sort of employment? Um, are they contributing more to the economy? Are they diversifying the, the the consumer experience in a neighborhood? Like uh, all of these are things you could inform with, with administrative data. It just doesn't happen to be the sort of thing um, that gets collected by tax agencies and things like that. So yes, I do think there's a thing there. Uh, it's been a little bit of a campaign to be like, what about these other businesses? <laughs> um, so we, when we like, most of our clients are, are either small employers or micro employers or non-employers, right? So, um, uh, so, so yes, I, I very much think that that's a, a thing where the data could lead you to ask certain questions and not ask other questions if you don't have data on it.
2: I guess as a quick follow up to that. Um... Do you think that a lot of the data that you're sourcing, uh, the, the access to this, like small business data, is precisely because uh, banks like J.P. Morgan and Chase have a position where you know they can like leverage this data, where you can like, where you can actually like look at this. Where um, on the other side, like more general like GDP uh, growth data, stuff like that, um, it's it's not as like accessible to like all researchers. Do you think that you're in a specific position where um, like you have the privilege to look at this data or um, do you think it's more of just like a personal choice like oh like I just wanted to um...
1: oh no I mean I, I think we um, are pretty I mean uh, individually as, as as our institution I think we are like well look like here here's data that we have access to that sort of is more likely to make a contribution to the conversation because it is distinctive and I I think that is also I think generally true of, of, of research, um, right, where people are, no one entity is is answering the entirety of the question, like it all needs to come together, right, so like, um, so I, I, I believe <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, we are incrementally um, sort of pushing the policy conversation forward by bringing a different kind of data, and yes, I think we're quite intentional about like, like, Here's something different that we can, we can bring to bear on this question um, and, and, and other people should continue to do the really important research that, that they do from other, you know it, it's not sort of a, um, this one is better or this one is better, but like you should, you need them both to kind of get a, a complete view of, of what's happening in the economy. Uh,
0: Chris, before Brian ask you more specific questions about your specific findings on COVID, I guess uh, my last question on this big data topic is, um, do you think there's a lag when it comes to um, academics Getting some of those, obviously it seems that you guys being in the private sector, having that position, as what Brian was saying, you obviously have that first mover advantage of getting that primary source data. So, so part of my conjecture is like, when we talk about stuff like real-time economic recovery, when we talk about real-time consumer spending, it seems that the private sector and, and a private sector nonprofit think tank like J.P. Morgan Chase Institute is uniquely positioned. Uh, to to publish insights on these things, and, and just like how hedge fund managers get data on these things much earlier than academics, and they 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 make trades on them, and how that's how they generate alpha, as compared to academics who probably want to do things more properly, they want to identify the causal inference, they want to run all kinds of robustness tests, uh, and so on. But but that's not really how policy sort of real time insights should be done. So.
1: I feel obliged to point out that we're <laughs> the density we, uh, We're all employees of J.P. Morgan Chase, so we sort of live within J.P. Morgan Chase. Yeah. Um, not a material part of your question, but it's <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just another observation is, I'm, I, I wish I could cite something here, and I can't, but um, the number of publications across domains um, per whatever unit you want to do um, sort of from March onward, just like skyrocketed, right? Like by academics, like they putting, take take all of the private sector involvement out, right? I think um, it has been interesting at least um, <laughs> I'm also a sociologist to observe uh, like the, the institutional sort of changes around that. Um, Many journals were like, "What we want today is real time, as real time as you can get it." Um, and so, like, I think everybody, because 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 it was important, right? Like, like um, tried to find ways to be more responsive in the last twelve months, um, and did, and, and and got stuff out in a new ways. And, and that 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 was certainly true in academia. It was true for us. Uh, we are not real. Time, like if you look at our publication dates and sort of the the, the, the like we have we we scroll we we got that window tighter, like like a lot of people did. It's um, not like um, uh, exactly real time because we also <laughs> like to be sure uh, that the the things we're seeing are not sort of an artifact of some business process or something like that, and it takes some time to do that. Um, so I, again, I feel like there's a spectrum, but for for what it's worth, like the whole distribution moved to the right in terms of responsiveness over the last year. In a super interesting way, um, you know, the medical field, uh, medical research, and sort of everything—just like huge incremental volume of stuff because people were trying to, you know, answer questions that were time-sensitive. And, and so I, I found it to be incredibly interesting. As a
2: change,
0: I guess uh, moving back to s- some of the specific uh, findings that y- that you found. I mean, I- I'm particularly interested in this one report. Uh, small business financial outcomes during the onset of COVID-19. You found that typical small business cash, cash balances dropped like 12.7 percent after the onset. You found uh, cash balances declined in every city, most deeply in Atlanta, where balances decreased by 21 uh, percent. You found that the, the revenues declined across industries with a vi- wide variety in the severities. Restaurants and personal services were particularly uh, hard hit, especially the services industries, but Uh, everybody kind of nobody did really well and and also lastly you 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 outlined the the racial inequities which is cash balances of black owned firms decreased by 26 percent Asian owned firm declined by 60 percent in in revenue so so basically uh, minorities were hard hit so I I guess I'd love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on on some of those matters uh the 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 kind of follow-up work you you guys did and also how you arrive at those research yeah um where,
1: where did I dig in? Like, um, there's so much stuff back there. So some of those questions, you know, were situated in, in, in distributional differences that we had seen in small business research in the past, right? So you not know, for nothing, we had, had several years of, of trying to understand um, uh, more yeah. robust and less robust segments of, of the small business sector, um, sort of by industry, um, like I said, by, by city somewhat, um, and, and certainly by the, by the race of, of the owner. And it had seen really material differences, right? Um, and some of what we saw seemed to be sitting within that same structure and kind of reinforcing it. So, it like, wasn't like entirely surprising to see um, that outcomes for for Black-owned businesses um, were um, less robust um, because we had seen in prior research that they tended to carry less cash, that they tended to have less revenues to begin with, um, sort of suggesting that they would be possibly more exposed to sort of um, negative shocks. Um, The results for Asian uh, business owners were actually kind of interesting because we had, I should take a little step back. The way that we see uh, owner race, um, generally speaking, your bank doesn't know your race. Um, But uh, we went through a pretty careful process to use voter registration data from um, three states where states have to collect um, race information, or they have to put it on the voter registration information and so people can fill it out. So you have self-reported information. but it's only in part of the country, and then we only have in the place where Chase has, um, you know, a meaningful customer population. Um, and so, for that reason, because the states were Florida, Georgia, and um, and Louisiana, uh, it wasn't there, there was neither a large or particularly representative Asian population in those states, sort of relative to the rest of the country. So it was, it was complicated. But we we just the same for for this particular report looked at that just because there were so many questions about. How people um, were responding to our Asian business owners, sort of across the the country, was we like this is important. So like let's try and inform it as best as we can. We saw stuff uh, that was different, and sort of and you sort of pointed out like the the, the meaningful drops in revenue, the meaningful drops in balances, um, um, weren't necessarily sort of following. They were they were they were bigger than you might have expected, having seen sort of like at a high level than what we'd seen before. So I, I thought it was particularly important to sort of call attention to that and raise that up. Um, and again, I think it's part of what we are thinking about both in terms of industry, um, uh, owner race and city maybe, um, but um, you know, if I were just gonna try to like outline like where I think the, the interesting work might be to think about in terms of recovery maybe more sort of like much more granular geographic differences so we haven't done this work yet um we'd like to do this work yet, so like like stay tuned to see if we can get this turn relatively quickly um it's certainly like trying to look at some sort of with within city differences it's this kind of thing we've seen huge differences in in, in other small business research and so like i have a, a prior uh that while the differences across cities were interesting like atlanta yes it did sort of have a a bigger drop than other cities. Um, I think that within the cities, the differences are, might be much, much bigger, and um, something for particularly local policymakers to I mean, I think local policymakers know this um, at a high level, but maybe don't have good data sources to to be pointed about. Like, well, what do you actually do about it? Um, to to try to paint that picture a little more carefully.
2: And so, on the topic of racial inequities. Um, there's another another one of your pieces, small business owner race liquid, liquidity and survival, uh, like addresses this. So part of your recommendations to policymakers includes targeting uh, small businesses um, run by minority groups with younger owners owned by women. Um, so why do these specific subgroups, um, including businesses that are run by uh, Black, Asian, Hispanic families, why do they pose the best option for broad-based uh, economic growth?
1: Yeah, no, it's it, it's a really good question, and it's and, and how much time do we have for? Um, look, the, the the shortest version of the answer, and in did we release this piece yet? We have a piece. Uh, we didn't, it, no, we haven't yet. We, it's done, but it's not really out yet. Like yeah. sort of like a high it's level new research. Uh, um, yeah. You know, one of. The, one of the great things about uh, the data, as we have it, is, is particularly relative to other. Well, probably in both directions, um, is we can see, you know, the finances of of the owner of a business as well. Even if you couldn't see that, you could sort of stack the research that we've done about small businesses and about households, and just like just put them together. And so, like, I'll, I'll try to tell the story that way, which is. Um, The gaps that we see in in small business outcomes certainly seem to align to the gaps that we see in just sort of basic household outcomes, and so all of the forces that come into play there. You know, this is this is where I'm trying to summarize a thing that (laughs) that doesn't lend itself to summarization, but you know, a long history of policies that were at least um, disparate outcomes, right? Um, and, And sometimes disparate intent. Um, and sometimes explicitly discriminatory, right? Um, so so you have the whole bucket of those and they, and they can be slow-moving things, especially when it's like asset accumulation. Um, and so that is my incredibly short and unfair summary of you know sort of how is it that we have gotten to in 2021 a position where there're like these meaningful disparities in income and in, in, in wealth, sort of condition on income and in all kinds of other things, right um, that that are the context in which small businesses, Live, you go and you start a small business, um, your financial position, the financial position of people that you know, your friends and family that you might be going to to get access to capital like all of those things, I think, uh, play in like where you live um, and where you choose to open your business um, also is running some of these same rails. Uh, and so you may be in a different customer universe. Uh, the, the whole <laughs> whole field right like it, it 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 applies to small businesses as well and, and, and you know sometimes it doesn't get talked about as much um but, but lots of people do um but that would be my. again it feels like a super high level waving answer um but i but I'm, I'm happy to dig in anywhere uh if, it, if it's if it's helpful to do so
2: yeah i guess it would be great to talk a little bit more about that um what type of fiscal policy do you think or legislative policy can Kind of, like, weave in or try to fix those, um, like systemic structural issues within like banking, um, that you know, uh, have lended itself towards like discriminatory practices in the past. Um, is there, like, do you think about those types of like questions? Um, like, if so, yeah, like, what fiscal policy do
1: you think? Yeah, doing? no, um, I do, and we do collect speaking. Um, I should say, on, on behalf of, of the institute, um, and other you know, policy functions within uh, the bank, um, we have a uh, a closely aligned um, uh, organization that does like policy ab- advocacy in in this domain, in, in a, more or less independent from sort of um, or distinct way from the sort of the the, the broad policy objectives of, of the bank. Um, the the most high level answer. Well, maybe I'll approach it in a narrative form. Um, I had alluded before to some research that we had done. So this is in fiscal policy, um, uh, which, is, is, which is a question that I think we wanna take a look at because there's some actually really interesting like, um, macro cycle questions you might ask about. like like And, and I think the Fed has recently really uh, started lifting up some of these questions about sort of how is macro fiscal policy um, affecting distributional outcomes and I suspect you guys have been tracking that by the nodding that I see so um, so yes like those those kinds of things at, at the macro fiscal level I, are, I think we should look into and understand more um, and and we will will try to sort of inform that as best as we can um, at the totally other end of the spectrum in terms of like super micro stuff um, we did a, a piece that, Try to correlate and there's descriptive correlation stuff. So, uh, so you know, are, are teeing up at some point more um, carefully designed assessments, but um, neighborhood, con- neighborhood conditions to small business outcomes. So, pick pick a a, a zip code feature of interest and and, and <laughs> scatter plot it against like small business outcome of interest, uh, essentially. So, you know, you can, like, treat it a little more carefully than that, but basically do that. And, like, Things like median housing value, like play, are are very highly correlated with the small business outcomes. And so, again, it's like, are there things that you can do that are really distinctively pointing at the small business sector, be it, Loan policy subsidization, essentially federal or, or local, right? Like, there's been a lot of that kind of activity, you know, in in the COVID area, right? Like, we're sure like well, we're gonna we're gonna use loan like channels to get funding to small businesses, and that happens federal and that happens state. Um, but also, like the entire domain of policy levers that are impacting household finances um, are affecting the shape of outcomes in the small business sector as well. So. It's, Housing policy, it's you know, zoning policy, that like there's all kinds of things that are 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 at least trickling through and and affecting the shape of of the outcomes for small businesses as well.
0: Chris, why don't we just jump right in? Because you uh brought up some some so much to unpack there, especially when you talked about the macro financial trends and and the macro fiscal policy there. Uh so so indeed, as you said, there's a very heated debate going on right now about the one point nine trillion dollar fiscal stimulus package. I mean, there there were several rounds of fiscal stimulus package and relief packages being passed in the past few months. And the the debate has always been, um, you know, the the Democrats saying, let's not wait too long. Like, let's not do too little, too late. And and let's just go for it. And then Republican side, slightly more conservative side is always saying, like their critique, especially, especially given this um, round of stimulus, they're always saying it's not targeted enough. Uh, you guys are not looking into the distributional effect. You guys are are are, are thinking to t- t- you. You want to cover everything. You want to pass your whole agenda. You you don't want to. You're not targeting the actual small businesses or the people. So so there's so much like detailed uh, things that we can't go into per se. But uh, do you have any stance on, on this matter particularly, or or I mean, we, we don't have to go into the to the to make you comment on the 1.9 trillion dollar package per se. But I guess just in, just in general, the the kind of fiscal actions that we've seen in the past few months in response to COVID. What do you think?
1: Uh, you, you're right, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll comment. Right, look, I mean, I, I mean, I can certainly say a few things that I think are true, although maybe like, you, you, you can tell me how informative they are. Um, a thing that our research has suggested prior to the pandemic was that, at least with respect to the small business sector, although, I mean, I think you could point in similar things for, for households, I think the Fed study that talked about sort of like how difficult, at least in, in a survey lens for people to come up with, you know, four or $500 or like that, that certainly small businesses were working on a very, very short cash buffers and, and maybe true for households as well. Um, and so like our estimates were, you know, with no more revenue, no more inflows, but like, the same level of, of outflow commitment like you still have to make the same payments um, typical small business you know two two three weeks depending on how you cut it right a couple of weeks um, and I, I say that as context for in, in, in some sense that if you turn the revenues off a lot of small business owners are gonna turn the, the expenses off but just the same some sense that like when you don't know what things are gonna look like you sh- might act quickly and sort of like like that's that is that would be a reasonable read I think of kind of what we saw in our research that there would be some um, particularly the higher the level of uncertainty is about the extent of the go forward thing you know, has that uncertainty probably come down some since March of 2021 like probably but you um, see you can draw the through line there. But the, but the point about targeting, I think, is equally important, and they're often intention. I mean, this is this is what this certainly felt like to me watching the policy process in mid 2020, where it's like we, well, you could spend another month, you know, trying to sort of solve the, the the targeting problem, or you could sort of do money sooner, and like like which way do you want to be wrong? Like uh, so. Um, and I would just say that I'm empathetic to, to that tension um, as people feel it uh, um, when they're really trying to try and design the policy and deliver the policy at the same time that you, it, it matters how long you spend on it. So, but also you, you know, budgets and stuff. I mean, I know it's like the federal government so it's a little bit different, but, um,
2: but yeah. And so on that note of fiscal policy, like given that small businesses uh, generate um, a large portion, 44% of US economic activity, and um, your reports are focusing on how they require the most economic assistance uh, during COVID. So like what type of fiscal policy best meets then the needs of small businesses, as opposed to large corporations and big banks? I feel like um, in, over the past year, we've seen a lot of stuff in the media about how a lot of like stimulus packages and uh, fiscal policy hasn't um, really felt like it's been hitting the small businesses or it, sometimes it's been feeling a little bit misguided. So is that, Kind of like a structural issue with just the nature of fiscal policy, or is there um, just something that's missing and how you know that's being implemented?
1: You know, it's it's been a, a real, I would say, conundrum. <laughs> um, and this is a little bit, I would say, sort of pros and cons of, of of well complications of dealing with different kinds of data. So so that I don't really privilege one one sort of another. Um, so that I'm not even pointing at our own data. If the Census Bureau did a, um, a, a survey, uh, I think it was called Small Business Pulse Survey, and apologies to my friends at the census if I got the, the name wrong, but it was a great survey. Um, we use a lot because we're really trying to benchmark like what we saw in our data vis-a-vis um, uh, what they were seeing in sort of like what the received narrative was. Um, uh, and so they asked a question which was quite similar to a question we asked, which is like, how much cash do you think you have? And they, they bucketed, and I can't remember exactly what the buckets were, but they were something like a couple of weeks, a month, you know, two, two to three months, like, like those granularity of buckets. Um, if you go and look at those data through, I think October was the last time or so, um, it looked like most small businesses had more cash on hand than they had had before. Look at our data; it looked like that too. But you don't know because we're like, but but like I know that like we have a fairly representative sample. But it's always hard to know like what exactly you don't see, right? Like we, we try to benchmark as best we can. Um, so I, I guess I'm um, Brian. Like I'm, I'm thinking about the premise of the question a little bit, where I'm like, it continues to be a, a empirical question worth answering, like. Like what actually is what what is actually happening sort of at any given point, uh, particularly at the decision point um, um, of this conversation about sort of like well like it it is enough getting to different segments of the economy because because every time you see an aggregate answer, there's a a a totally right-minded inclination to dig in and be like well if it's fine here, is it fine sort of like in some subgroup there? Um, But I feel like I'm being a little bit oblique, but um, it's it's. Lots of metrics would suggest that the policy intervention has reached lots of small businesses and it has reached lots of families. And so, and then when you ask people, so that's like one source of data, but then when you kind of ask people, like you get a different answer and like we need to, we need to reconcile those things because I think as, as long as we're getting both stories, it's super hard to figure out what to do um, when you can't like cleanly reconcile them. Um, but I think you would need to do that before first, before really trying to offer uh, a response to like, well, why, is, why why is this group getting or not getting enough or, or too much or whatever the case may be like, <laughs> we just need to nail down like, like but, but what did they actually get and sort of like where do they actually sit? Because you get very different answers depending on how you try to answer the question.
0: Chris, this is actually just fascinating. I, I would love to drill a little bit more into, into yeah. this thing. So uh, I suppose there's a two- part question here. One is, Uh, do you think it is possible to uh, to arrive at a somewhat objective truth uh, at what is actually going on because as you said you know dependent data sources different perspectives and the second question is do you think in the previous few months of our COVID-19 fiscal policy response there were cases where we rushed into the action we're rushed into explanation before actually knowing what was going on meaning uh, guys listen we just got to do this and this and this but we don't act, we didn't actually understand why something was happening
1: let, let me let me start with particularly with the, with the first question like 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 let me if you had like if, if somehow there was like an electronic record of everybody's financial position banked or unbanked just to be really clear about sort of like structure of like 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 why you might want to be careful about the way you interpret anything right like that the segment of the population that is most difficult to observe, it's also the segment of the population where you might be most likely to observe the harm. Right. So like, like that, that's a little bit of what, um, particularly from like a private sector, you know, administrative point of view, Um, a little bit less so from from a government, point of view, but, but even there, it's like really, you still have to go Knock on people's doors and ask some questions, right? Like it's not like you get like perfectly even response rate, even in in what is crafted as a national study. Um, so because of that, you know, like it sort of like makes me very slow to second guess anybody's policy decisions, because um, you know, like you'd have to imagine that there was a way to 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 get the fully comprehensive answer. Um, so we do the best we can, and we try to like explain caveat sort of say what we think we know that we're more certain about and be clear where we're less certain um, but like this there's, there's real uncertainty like you have to make decisions that without that perfect information and so. And then it becomes very easy to second guess the decision that somebody else made um, when you didn't have to make it so that's why I, I tend not to second them.
0: So I, I, I guess would that also be your response to the second part of the question, meaning. Did you feel like we were we. Are we saying that. It's hard to know the exact explanation or causality of certain things. But we we should hesitate to, to second guess the policy actions because sometimes it's just so urgent and and it's it would take way too long for you to try to arrive at this some kind of objective truth where
1: or... I mean I,
0: I guess in short. I mean, like right, you should you should
1: you should try as best as you can. You, you should invest in getting yeah. a better. And then you should do something. <laughs> I and mean, then you should do something, right, right? right? And then like you should refine, and you should like continually sort of update. And so, um, I like, I, mean. Mean, like I, I know it's a little bit of a form yeah. answer as opposed to sort of like a, <laughs> a a substantive answer, but it, it, that has been my, my my you know we yeah I you know if you look across our research, you'll see a lot of things which will have the shape of like this policy information seemed amongst our universe of 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 you know. Of observations to have successfully elevated the balances of families and different reasons for high income families and low income families. And then we see a trajectory that suggests those balances are coming back down, but it's a trajectory. And so, I think, you know, we don't really forecast, right? But like you sort of find yourself with that kind of incomplete answer. And it's like, what should you do? Like, you should, you should think about what you can do next time with that information. Um, uh, Brian, you asked this question about targeting, like, if you, if, you, if you want to hedge you might target more so that you're more likely to end up in a place where you know you're sort of delivering to the people who are most in need like that always seems like a that particularly seems like a, a reasonable idea um, given what we have seen in the data not that it always seems like a good idea but certainly
0: um, we have seen differential impacts so, so you previously used the word bleak uh, to, to somewhat describe the, the sentiment um, did, did you think, I mean, looking back at, at what happened, I mean, right now we're recording this end of February. And, and I still remember going to a talk in uh, October, which, which would be four or five months ago. And back then, economists were saying that the, the, the fourth quarter projections for small businesses were just frightening. It's like 40, 42% of small businesses might never make it to 2021. They, they, they ask small businesses what, what they estimate their sales will be going forward. And then they try to kind of, discount that. We're trying to make some projections. And, and it just seems that like, you know, half the small business thing would take at least six months to resume normal operations and, and blah, blah, blah. So there's just all kinds of uh, absurd statistics that, that we saw from the. So I think my question would be looking back again, big picture. D- did you feel like there was some kind of a V-shaped recovery in the sense, like uh, we injected the thing and, and the things got better? Or, or, or is it like right now we're still at a, at a position very much Still very urgent. Uh,
1: I, I think it's a reasonable question, and again, I'm, I'm trying to offer like my my actual sort of um, caution interpreting things, and sort of like not trying to sort of like like run out ahead of what we actually know. Um, it is definitely the uh, I can definitely think of instances um, where the most, um, I'm trying to do this sort of both on our book and our on, on off our book, right? In terms of like, like, like who's doing research, but like there, um, there was a, a piece of research uh, that was, uh, I think appropriately widely cited, um, which again was not using, uh, I'm using survey data, but it wasn't using sort of like people's beliefs data, it was like using like what actually happened data from the CPS to understand uh, what business closures might look like. Um, And in, oh, I'm gonna get the months wrong here, but I wanna say in April, um, it's easier for me to remember the statistic on on black owned businesses because it caught a lot of attention, which was that like from CPS data, um, 41% of of businesses were not operating, right? Like they they, they asked self-employed people um, are, you, are you operating your business this week um, in, in the current population survey? And they also ask race. And so you can get a health and, and it comes out really quickly, right? So CPS comes out much faster than a lot of other things on small businesses, particularly from public sector data sources. The researcher who did this work very super carefully explained what he was measuring. <laughs> you know, these businesses were not um, operating this week. And this is a huge departure from what we typically see because it was. Um, he then being a really good researcher followed up a few months later and was like, well, what do these numbers look like in May, June and July? And like the numbers come down some and he was not wrong about um, the number in in March and he wasn't wrong about the number in July which I think was 19% or something like that. Um, so Rob, if you're listening, hope I'm representing your research correctly. Cause I thought this was super important. Like people should work really hard to get the most up-to-date information to, to people who are making decisions. But the thing that happened was everybody remembered the forty-one percent number, and like that is not Rob Fillion's fault. <laughs> like he did everything you could possibly do to try to sort of make sure that people have the most up-to-date information. But like so, so is that people overreacting? Like I don't know. I mean, it's sort of like the the real sort of policy-making process. Um, but when I I don't I don't know if that is the the number that you were uh, sort of that had filtered its way through many translations right <laughs> and sort of like become the number. Um, but that's the way I think the process works in practice, and like you have to continually update it. And like I feel like many people in the research community are trying really hard to continually update it and make sure like all the information is there um, against the policy pro- pro- process, which. You have to work to get it to pay attention to all the research, which is what we do. I mean, it's like it's, it's kind of a complaint, but um, but it is work.
0: I, I guess my last question on this front before Brian pivots I, 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 do you, I mean, I, I was, I guess I had this previous con- conception of um, uh, objectiveness when it comes to research. You know, the, the facts, right? I mean, we often hear this in the media, which is like, it is a fact that, you know, this number of people are suffering, it is a fact that this number of people. doing this is the fact that researchers found this and we see those simple statistics flowing around and are used to back certain people certain narratives or policies right Uh, restaurants should all open up because this happened restaurants should all close down because this happened and and sometimes I, i i feel like the the politicization of this current um you know well, I suppose fiscal policies is inherently a very political process because it is not a, a technocratic process per se, but it seems it's so politicized and narrative driven uh, that everybody can, can cherry pick their own set of facts and research to do things. So that you, is that something on your mind these days that, that when you see people cite your research, is there a way that you, that you hope they could see your research in a true light? Do you feel like certain people has uh, misconstrued and misappropriated your research into advocating positions that you personally disagree with? Um, Is is that something on your mind?
1: Um, I'm gonna gonna sort of say it's a profession of objectivity. Um, But not exactly. Everybody is estimating things, right? Like we, like particularly in the research community, like it's it's what we say we're doing. (laughs) Here's my estimate and you know, and so and you try to estimate them well, and, and you try to, um, you know, you try to within the scope of the particular research question you're asking, you try to get the error bounds on your estimate uh, to be small. Um, and then collectively, right, like you try to have more than one person try to answer the same question, um, you know, in slightly different ways and things like that. Um, and I think if you get a lot of people finding something that looks similar, <laughs> you know, like slightly different methods, you want to call that a fact? I think that is a totally constructive thing to do, right? Like I don't want to get caught up in the sem- semantics of postmodernism, which I'm more than happy to talk about if you really want to do that, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> are, are there facts or not? I'm like I don't know. Like, I wasn't the one bringing it up, Chris. <laughs> um, but what I know is that people need to do things. Um, <laughs> and I don't really keep them from doing. Like like I, I, you know like people there are lots of people who genuinely are trying to make the world a better place or generally trying to help people. Um, I don't know how helpful it is. Uh, to get too caught up in sort of a conversation about you know and things like that. so 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 that's a little bit of the texture of my answer to your first question like maybe there are facts maybe not but it's like really useful to have light shined on places where we tend to think that this is a reasonable and consistent answer and then you should then act on it um and so um i, I think that's what we're trying to do uh, i think it is super important you know just sort of to to throw what I think the question was about sort of like changes in the overall political zeitgeist or some such. Um, it seems to me that it would be really hard to get to places where people were coming to similar points of views about things or to know when you could shine that light if people didn't take for granted that you could get there and that facts were, you know, that it might be likely that in many cases you could have this convergence <laughs> around a thing, versus like I'm just gonna say whatever I want to say, and you're gonna say whatever you're gonna say, and like I'm not even holding myself or, or you accountable to some notion of trying to find convergence because, you know, I'm just producing ideas that are coming from my like political priors, um, right? Like that's not constructive, <laughs> um, like in the, in the most basic sense of the word constructive, like like actually getting to constructing things you could do stuff with so i i do worry about that i have a, i've been worried about that um for probably a
0: many year. yeah 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 the sociologist of you is coming out right now and, oh, and oh.
1: <laughs> that's what i am
0: um yeah economic
1: yeah. sociologist i guess yeah um, yeah yeah <laughs> um but yeah no i mean i, I <laughs> but, but i don't want anybody to take from that like Facts aren't important. Like, facts are super important. Um, you know, policy that is driven by, you know, a good, informed, you know, um, open to newness approach to figuring out the right thing to do to get from A to B, like, that would be better. And lots of people work really hard to do that. And so, um, kind of like helping those people to get their ideas done, I think is a, is a super important thing to do.
2: Yeah, I guess pivoting off of that um, more generally, just thinking about your role at um, a think tank, um, your role between research, business, um, legislation, policy, all of this. Um, So a report from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development uh, put out a quote about the role of think tanks in in today's society um, a few years back and it reads, the most gratifying moments in the think tank world have come when ambitious, politically, out-of-the-question ideas got noticed by public officials and legislators, and eventually were adopted as policy. So for you, does this sentiment ring true? And if it does or if it doesn't, um, could you tell us about a time when maybe you felt this?
1: Uh, <laughs> no, that's a good question. Uh, I think that's probably right, right? like. Uh, as an industry, if you want to think about it that way, right? Like a thing that the, the think tank industry could do that would be constructive would be to you know um come up with lots of new ideas, um, some of which might be super helpful and the rest of which may or may not be, right? Like that would be like fine, right? Like you know, produce some variety of ideas. Um and right. And and then like <laughs> um if, if your idea happens to meet the moment, um that would that is gratifying, right? Um uh you know gratifying is a is a a weird frame for the current moment like because like sometimes the world uh you know like like things things aren't going so well um but i certainly think uh a gratifying something in 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 that universe of, of gratification for for our research institution you know was uh The idea, like the the set of ideas that, that we had around, um, in particular, sort of liquid um, balances, both on the household and then and small business side, um, helped, I think, or at least seen relevant to at least based on the inbound that we got um, from policymakers, from journalists, et cetera, uh, to frame like what. What the course might be, you know, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Like, well, how much time do we actually have to to, to sort out this one? Like, I don't know. Is it, is it really two weeks? Like, I'm not totally sure, but like, you might think about this quickly. Um, was you know, um, uh, you know, something we have been saying for for a while, and like, I, I think it very much kind of um, follows the the the, the frame from the OECD report where it's like, you kind of had an idea, you've been shopping around and people like, oh yeah, like, like that seems relevant. And you're like, yes, I've been, I've been saying this for a while. Uh, it's terrible to be bringing this up. But um, um, so, so yeah, so, so that was a kind of gratifying like that. And I think, you know, we've had um, a couple of such moments um, sort of across the, the entirety of the Institute. Um, that might be the one that I think is the most recent and, and close to, to the work that I've been sitting on.
2: I think a little bit more on that. Um, I think the relationship between, uh, you know, like think tank researchers, like people who are providing this like primary source data and like processing that, um, the relationship between those researchers and legislators and policy, um, like I I have no impression of what that is like. I mean, you spoke to it a little, but for the most part, um, is that like like what is that like for you? Is that something that is it's a very unique relationship that's like just defined find like in this context of like a oh, think tank and like policy. Um, or, you know, is it more of just like a regular, like collaboration, um, something that you could see like between like, I don't know, the same way that like researchers collaborate between universities, something like that? Oh,
1: no, that that is a good question. And, and it takes us so many different shapes that I and I, and I have, um, this is the only thing think that I've worked at. <laughs> so like, it's a little bit hard for me to speak uh, to, to the field. Um, but What would I say? So, I mean, it, it can take so many forms, right? Like, but I'll, I, let me try to at least paint the spectrum. Um, from here's something that we think is important, and I'm just going to shop it around and see if anybody buys it, right? Um, not anybody buys it, but like, I'm going to go brief people who seem like they're making you know, a policy decisions in this field so that they are aware of a research is kind of like one end of that spectrum, I suppose. Um, The other end might be like somebody tees up a question and like that is a good question and we think that we have um, an ability to speak to it so like let's go try to answer that question um, and and see if we can produce something that is sort of responsive to a specific um, question that we heard from somebody. Um, I would say, so so both of those things happen and there's a lot in the middle where it's like I'm working on a project or our team is working on a project and uh, sort of while you're working on it you're like so. This is what I'm seeing. Um, other person in a think tank, in a different think tank, or you know, advocacy group, or sometimes um, Hill staffer or you know, local um, economic development, um, you know, works for a city or a state or you know, something like that. Like, we, we try to have all those engagements because it is helpful to, to like, probably the first thing is, is, the, is the least helpful because you're least likely to land. And something that's useful to somebody, right? So, like, we we do work to try to understand what the overlap is between policy questions um, that are interest that are uh, actionable and that people are interested in getting answers to, and sort of like where our d- data and kind of frameworks fit. So. So it's not like exactly collaborative in the way that like every day we sort of sit, you know like if you're working with a with another academic researcher and you sort of like you know get on Skype I guess um, these days uh, or not on Skype but Zoom um, you know like every week or every day but um, but like the back and forth I do think is, is a part of the process at least the way that I've experienced it here and I suspect that that is quite common.
2: That's pretty interesting, yeah. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, I think that you have. There's like a lot to be said or at least something to be said about the path that you took into business research so um, i mean we mentioned this at the beginning but it seems like there were perhaps like two pivot points um in you know like your education and your interests like first from engineering and like technology to sociology and then maybe second from sociology to business uh, like where you are today um at jp morgan chase institute um so could you explain the rationale behind kind of like concentrating in these like seemingly like disparate fields or yeah. if there was anything, like anything interesting there?
1: Um, at the time we did not seem as much of a pivot as it probably does in retrospect.
2: Um, uh,
1: so narrowly, right? Like when I was, um, by the time I, you guys are Princeton. students by the time I was finishing the engineering equivalent of, of a senior thesis, I was doing robotics and so I was already like a little bit in the, in the AI space. Um, the AI space actually overlaps a little bit with, with the social sciences space, particularly at the psychology end. Like some people in AI think that they are modeling the behavior of people. Um, and that was the piece that I sort of sat in. And I was, I had policy interests and I kind of wanted to know like how I could bring the technology thing to the world. And so kind of parlaying whatever, I had learned from that into, but could you simulate sociological phenomenon with computer simulations? It's kind of what I thought I was uh, sort of headed toward. Like, it didn't seem like a crazy pivot. It seemed I, like I acknowledged that it was an uncommon thing to do, um, but uh, it, didn't, it didn't feel like that much of a pivot at the time. Um, uh, and I happened to do that at a place and um, an organizational behavior program that not for nothing had both a psychology and sociology element to it, uh, where it was in a business school, um, and so the thing one does when they get a PhD from a business school typically is they go teach in business school. And so I found myself teaching strategy and entrepreneurship, um, and and now sort of continue to sort of look at least the small business end of that. So like there were, there were connectivity points throughout, um, but, I, but I fully acknowledge that it is an unusual path
0: um, to. To, to take. Um, All right, yeah. Chris, uh, I think I'm going to put my devil's uh, advocate hat on and, and, and let me ask you something that could be controversial. Oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> since we've already developed such a great rapport <laughs> in the in, in the last 80 minutes or so, but the, the, the thing is, I mean, personally, I was uh, choosing between uh, industry versus academia. I was thinking about whether I should apply for an econ PhD over, over the past few months, and uh, I, I it seemed to me that Um, there's a lot of complaints against from from industry people or or non-academic people against academia, saying that a lot of times the research that are being done in academia does not have um, sort of a realistic policy impact or that that they're they're too theory-based or or simply wrong or simply about making marginal improvements uh, designed for getting published in journals rather than thinking about long-term issues that are actually needed to, to, to advance innovations or so on. So, it, and, and econ and business is it, also kind of an interesting field because uh, it's, it's kind of unlike a hard science, right? It, it, like hard science, if you, if you found a new physics theory or solved the math problem, you're objectively you know, the, the guy, but uh, whereas in, in econ, it's sort of less har- hard to tell whether does your research actually have a real world impact? Is it correct? Is it not? So, I, I was just wondering, I mean, having seen all those sides, I mean, I mean also we're not trying to get you to, to denounce academia or, or whatever research, but um, do you feel there's a tendency for academics to be incentivized to, to do more uh, theory related or, or, or pushing the frontier a little bit? Or, 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 or do you see, think maybe people, people in the industry research you know, at a place like JP Morgan Chase Institute are slightly more incentivized to think about questions uh, without without feeling constrained that they would have to publish in some journal or whatever or get tenure, yeah. Uh, and so, uh,
1: yeah no. I mean, look. The, yeah, the incentives are different.
0: Like, um, I, I, don't, I don't, think that's
1: particularly controversial. Um, like, I are mean, the incentives the right incentives? Uh, maybe is is different. Ask the question. I I'm, again, because I was a business professor at one point. I have a slide somewhere of um, an old slide because I haven't looked at it in a while. Um that tries to draw like the value chain as I I see it, um, sort of the supply chain, I mean, actually what I mean here, Um, of like ideas into policy and partly because I was like trying to think through like like, what is the distinctive strategy of the Institute sort of vis-a-vis anybody else, but um, a robust ideas economy, ideas and policy economy, (laughs) would have some differentiation in it, right? Like somebody I think should should underwrite the risk of solving thorny basic problems, right? Like we need institutions <laughs> that do that um, because, um, because not every institution is gonna be able to create the, the incentive structure to support, right? Like go off for seven years and be smart right let me get back to you in seven years and i right like uh yeah. So, yeah. so so i i think it's important to have the whole same yeah or um because otherwise like parts won't get done and like some people are able to do sort of like more of that and like that's cool um but like i, I don't think that the representative person can can you know all live in a unicorn forest um yes, so, yes, uh, yes. uh right so like um yeah uh so yes yeah, so i i, I I had alluded to this before when I said talked about the spectrum right but like um we do things faster um, and we are privileged to be sort of um, to be able to en- en- engage in policy conversations with people who are like um, um for for reasons that are partly about our choices about sort of time frame but also partly because we we, we bring with us a large institution like right? like it's it's all part of it um but we couldn't do that if if nobody was taking on the, the thorny hard problems, right? Um, and so
0: yeah, I think you need it all. I see, I see. I, I, the, the only reason I was, so I, I remember talking to a, a Wall Street chief economist a, a few months ago and he was joking to me. He was saying like, you know how Raj Chetty and his Opportunity Insights Lab released all those real time economic data during COVID. It was so wonderful. Everybody was plotting and all that stuff. And he was like, yeah, like a hedge fund in New York like got that data like four months ago and they already made trades on it. It's like, like if you are just talking about data or, or if you're just talking about policy recommendation, we're making real time decisions and actually helping people. A lot of times it seems that the private sector are sort of much more uh, equipped to, to address some of those issues. It's just the incentive structure isn't there for the hedge fund to help people, right? They just want to, to get the data and make money. Whereas academia has that incentive, but they're somewhat maybe slow, they need to do things properly, they need to, they, they struggle sometimes, those th- have to think about more long-term questions. Well, I, I totally agree with you that they serve no, no, different I mean, functions.
1: It, it, It's interesting. I remember being on a panel a long time ago and having not this conversation, but an adjacent conversation about um, just about data providers and like sort of who, like, like, how should we think about the future of data provision. Um, and 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 I, I think that the the, the, the tension that was set up was sort of like take like the Census Bureau versus like for instance J.P. Morning Chase right like a, as a placeholder here Mark. yes and yes. uh I, I think I can say without again saying anything controversial like we uh, a bank the bank that I work for but banks in general um are solving a business problem of delivering financial services to their customers right um and you, know, you better worse a job at that, but like that's that's kind of the thing that, that also generates some data. Um, if changing a product set would better deliver to customers, and would also change the structure of the data, the bank should probably do that. That's terrible for research, right? Like you're never going to get a 150 year data series doing that, right? Like the Census Bureau has been asking the same question for a long time, and like you know, in some questions. Right, like, so for a very, very long time. I mean, if you need to understand long time horizon thing, like if you want to know something about like economic cycles, uh, it might be hard to get that from, you know, the kind of administrative data that gets produced in the private sector for solving mostly problems that exist in like, you know, a couple of month time frame, maybe a couple of years at most, right? Um, for for most of the kind of high-frequency producers of the data. It's so like a hedge fund is not, other than back testing, right? <laughs> like, um, is not generally speaking that interested in like last year's data, and so can live in the universe of sort of like whatever you happen to just generate in the last three months. Um, but for some important policy questions, um, it would be helpful to know like what happened over the last three cycles. Um, and so, again, you know, so, so I don't know which uh, uh, chief economist you're talking to. <laughs> Uh, But she or he probably also knew that, and so...
0: I'm just fishing for for a criticism on on everything these days. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Yeah, all good.
2: Um, I'll throw in, uh, like, one final question before we wrap up here. Um, So, Tiger, uh, you know, put in his perspective as, you know, like a senior graduating off uh, from econ, um, as a freshman, as an underclassman, um, i'll bring in a different slightly different pers- perspective on that same question so i feel like a lot of like my peers and like uh like students here um are eager about going into careers in like finance fintech tech um, at the same time also thinking about questions of um, like uh, academia and research right they want to like find a future where they can um, have some freedom to explore like intellectual like passions um in a meaningful way so as someone who has, helped run a financial technology startup before coming to um, Morgan Chase Institutes, um, And as someone who also has a very like niche um, position between these two divides of like industry research in the context of like finance and business, um, could you highlight maybe some of the key differences between these two or maybe um, how to navigate between these two? Like it, sometimes it feels like there's only um, like this or that, like kind of a binary to choose from. Um, but as someone who is like actually has like navigated a path between, like maybe there's like other options that students can work towards.
1: Uh, you know, the last thing you said is like actually probably the, 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 the most, you said many insightful things in your question, but the last one was maybe the most, like there, there are a lot, the world is full of these like little niche things. And I think, um, you know, um, is there equitable access to these niche things? No, might um, you know uh, your classmates uh, be on the, the 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 long end of that stick? Like yes, uh, so <laughs> I know I'm saying a lot there, but, but there are like a bunch of like interesting things in the world, um, and they are not super. I don't recall them being super observable from, from 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 when I was sitting in your seat, so to speak, right? Like it was it was very obvious that like I could be a consultant. Or I could be an investment banker, which are like actually interesting jobs in their own right that can take you through all kinds of interesting things. Um, but the things that people did downstream of that, or just later, even if they weren't downstream of that, um, you know, like uh, in, in the before times I worked in the city of DC, I'm now sitting in, in my increasingly dark room here in Columbia, Maryland. Um, uh, DC is just full of all kinds of different combinations of things. And New York is all full of like these different combinations that are in between and are not not the obvious way to put something together, but like are solving a specific problem for, you know, that, mi- that mix, is it creative, explorative? Is it sort of like hard driving, like selling a product? Like there are more choices and it's not obvious. It's not, I don't want to undersell how hard it might be to find such a thing, but I do want to to shine a light on on, on the fact that there are like, like I wasn't looking for this job but I did stumble into this job and it was, it did sort of split the difference I think in the way you kind of set the question up um, because they are quite different things. Like the other, the there are a lot of you know, business industry jobs where um, you've got a and and you need to make sure that you're selling something and, and the time horizons are gonna be short um, and then I think particularly you know um, um, you know I have a lot of uh, friends that I went to school with who are also kind of in, in the more pure form academic thing right like where it's uh, not the time isn't important there too, but it's, it has a different shape um, and a different kind of sort of um, set of incentives and those are pretty pretty far apart and they do feel different I think along the way that, that you set up um, like a lot more freedom to sort of ex- explore stuff um, um, on the one hand and, and, and a lot more you um, focus and intensity and you know, sort of upside of reward too, quite frankly, um, and, and on the other side. And, and those are those are pretty far apart, but but there are many things in the middle and there's lots of um, things to find if you ask around. Uh,
0: just to gradually wrap up here, Chris, we, we always ask uh, two questions at the end of our interview. One is, uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic? The other is, uh, what would be your policy punchline? Uh, or oh, just punchline in um, not not think, really quick questions at the end. So, <laughs> kind of a curveball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, mean, I, I will say
1: that I think most people who know me reasonably well think that I'm a very optimistic person. But. End of answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, end of answer. Um, uh, <laughs> but if I were a pessimistic person, <laughs> uh, my pessimism drives me to work really hard to try to like make the world better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> policy punchline. Um, look, I think, um, Your, uh, your, your Your prompt, if not question below, uh, before about like um, Facts? Yeah. Right, like I think there is tremendous opportunity to make progress on finding, um, you know, private sector, public sector, whatever, like a huge opportunity in the private sector, I think to, to find ways to sort of bring that information to bear on on important questions, <laughs> we, we continue to have really important policy questions. Um, some of those are going to be executed by the public sector. Some of them are made by the private sector in the, choices they make about what products to deliver, to whom to deliver those products, and sort of like what to focus on. And like, there's just just, just a huge opportunity there, um, and um, and I think people should take advantage of it. I think people should lean into that, um, and I see that happening. I, um, and so I'm you know.
0: I'm optimistic about so that. you're optimistic yes i, I <laughs> end of the answer yes now uh chris thank you so much for joining brian and i today it's just uh, such a wonderful conversation
2: it's so nice to have you on the show
0: thank you guys this has been a lot of fun and then brian thanks so much for for hosting this uh interview with me
2: yeah of course i had a lot of uh, fun uh talking with you chris uh, well th- this concludes this episode policy punchline please visit on the policy
0: punchline Dot com. Uh, you may follow us on Twitter at Policy Punchline, and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. You may watch the recording of this interview on YouTube, and you may also uh, follow more of uh, Chris' work and the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute at jpmorganchase.com slash institute. So hopefully we, you can. We encourage you to follow uh, their their ongoing wonderful research uh, about across business and other sectors. Thank you so much for listening today.